Some of Jesus' harshest words he aimed at the Pharisees. So just who were these people? And why did Jesus judge them so severely? More importantly, how can you and I guard against becoming like them? Just ahead, you'll learn how to silence your inner Pharisee. Plus, we'll look at the headlines throughout the Middle East and answer your Bible questions. Hey, welcome to The Land and the Book with Charlie Dyer and yours truly, John Geiger. It's the program that takes you to the Holy Land and shows you sights you'll never forget. All of that for free. <laughs> hey, by the way, what do you do and where do you head for more content about Israel, the Bible, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people once our program is over? Well, Life and Messiah is focused on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics, and we encourage you to check out their content, which you will find inspiring and uplifting. As a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you can get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org and then click on the Moody Radio button there. All right, time for a look at current events. Story number one, having passed the first bill on judicial reform, Israel's Knesset has gone into recess until October, after the end of the High Holy Days. Now, does this mean Israel is now experiencing the calm before the next storm, or are tensions still at a boil over judicial reform? I haven't seen quite as much rattle and clatter. Well, with the Knesset not in session, much of the drama has shifted from there to the streets and to the courts. Thousands of protesters still continue to rally against the judicial reform. Uh, in fact, in Tel Aviv, they've had some of the largest protest movements in Israel's history. In the courts, eight petitions were filed against the law to cancel the reasonableness standard. And for the first time in the court's history, all 15 judges are going to preside over the hearing, which is now scheduled for September 12th. The high court has never before struck down an amendment to the basic law, their quasi-constitution, and it's unclear even if it's allowed to do so. A hearing for petitions over Prime Minister Netanyahu's conflict of interest violation, still another part of this uh, drama, was also set for September 12th. Uh, That's now been delayed. The Knesset had passed a law preventing the Attorney General from ordering a Prime Minister's recusal unless it's approved by a supermajority of 90 members of the Knesset. The Attorney General has approached the court to argue in favor of their striking down that legislation, which is also part of the basic law. However, she also said she wouldn't require Netanyahu to recuse himself from office because of his involvement in the judicial overhaul. Now, the question is, does she mean right now or during his remaining time in office? If the court were to strike down that law, technically, she could rule at any time that he needs to step away from being prime minister. The Knesset's legal advisor asked the court for permission to respond to the attorney general's request because, if it's accepted, it would mark the first time the courts would ever have struck down a quasi-constitutional basic law. And to have the attorney general arguing against a law adopted by the very government she represents just seems unprecedented. So it's definitely a difficult time in Israel. Sadly, rather than trying to work together and look for a way to compromise, It seems politicians from all sides are using the crisis to stoke the flames of partisan politics. Charlie, maybe I'm reading between the lines something that isn't there. Am I also to understand that it's possible that Israel's Supreme Court could overturn the very judicial reform bill that has been passed? Yeah, that's one of the real problems is, in essence, they would be saying, even though you changed the Constitution, you're not allowed to change the Constitution. We don't think that's reasonable, so we'll throw it out. 
And uh, that really creates a political conflict. It's, it puts the Supreme Court against the legislature, the Knesset, and uh, that's uncharted territory. That's never been done up to this point in Israel's history. Dr. Charlie Dyer, our expert today, Middle East authority here on The Land and the Book. We're working our way through a list of current events. President Biden is pushing a plan to bring together Saudi Arabia and Israel. How likely is the possibility of peace between these two long-term enemies? And what is each side hoping to gain? This story has as many plot twists as an Agatha Christie whodunit. President Biden apparently has three main goals for this plan. He wants to put pressure on the current Israeli government to make concessions to the Palestinians while isolating some of the more radical members of Netanyahu's coalition. Now, he also wants to wean Saudi Arabia away from the increasing influence that China and Iran have there. And finally, he wants a key diplomatic victory heading into the upcoming election season here in the States. Now, at the same time, Prime Minister Netanyahu wants the agreement because he wants to enhance his standing as prime minister by securing peace with the most significant Arab nation in the region. He also sees it as a way to corral the more extreme members of his coalition while also silencing many of his critics on the left. And ultimately, he believes the road to solving Israel's conflicts with the Arab states around runs through Saudi Arabia, not through the Palestinian Authority. Now, Saudi Arabia, let's go to the other side. Saudi Arabia, for its part, seems to be using the prospect of a peace treaty with Israel to get the U.S. to give them what they want. I remember at the beginning of President Biden's term, he called Saudi Arabia a pariah nation. Now he's discussing at least the possibility of forming a NATO-like agreement with them to protect against attacks from Iran. He's also discussing the sale of advanced military hardware and the possibility of allowing Saudi Arabia to have a nuclear reactor. Now, there are headwinds against this deal. In the U.S., both conservative and progressive members of Congress oppose it for different ideological reasons. In Israel, Netanyahu's liberal opponents, as well as the ultra-nationalists in his coalition, have also come out against the deal. Having those two sides agree on anything is amazing. And the Palestinians are opposed. They frankly understand what's being done, and they would be sidelined. They don't want that to happen. And Islamic fundamentalists in Saudi Arabia oppose it. So the deal could at least temporarily transform the Middle East, or it could blow up in the faces of everyone involved Uh, We'll just need to keep watching to see what happens. Sounds interesting, Charlie. We'll look to you for future developments. Recently, the Palestinian Authority and Hamas met in face-to-face meetings in both Turkey and in Egypt. So did anything come from these meetings? Uh, More importantly, can these two rival groups come to terms? Well, following the meeting between the two leaders in Ankara on July 26, both sides apparently agreed to hold talks aimed at reconciliation. And then four days later, they met again in Egypt and agreed to form a committee on intra-Palestinian reconciliation. But it's really difficult to read too much into those statements uh, for two reasons. First, Islamic Jihad and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, two other radical groups, boycotted the talks, which suggests continued conflict. And second, uh, there have been at least 15 separate reconciliation efforts between the Palestinian Authority and Hamas since 2005, all of which have failed. Uh, Both groups are still committed to establishing a single Islamic-dominated Palestinian state from the Jordan River to the sea. The main difference is how they accomplish it. Under uh, Arafat's leadership, the Palestinian Authority took a more long-range plan. He said, we'll have talks with Israel. We'll agree to the concept of a two-state solution. But what he promised in public, he apparently didn't hold to, and, and he shared other thoughts in private. He still believed the Palestinians could eventually eliminate the state of Israel and establish a single Palestinian state. 
Hamas, on the other hand, has pushed for continued armed conflict, and they refuse to acknowledge even that Israel could own so much as a single acre of land under their control. Now, to add to the problem, Mahmoud Abbas is 87 years old. He's becoming increasingly unpopular. Uh, In a recent survey, 80% of Palestinians surveyed think he ought to step down. So it seems Hamas might be using the reconciliation talks to increase their visibility and their popularity in the West Bank. But their goal ultimately is to take over the West Bank, just like they did in Gaza, when the timing is right. So all that to say, I would be surprised if these groups can reconcile and merge together. Uh, They might be smiling, but they don't trust one another. Charlie, I'm trying to process all of this. What is the single most important sticking point between the two sides, the Palestinian Authority and Hamas? Where's the sharpest point of divide? On how they go about accomplishing their goal of having a single Palestinian state and eliminating the state of Israel. Is it a gradual process or is it something that needs to be done through jihad, through through struggle and fighting now? Hamas says we need to keep pushing on this. And uh, the Palestinian Authority says, well, let's take our time. There's We can accomplish it, but it'll be a more long-range project. Well, cue the James Bond music. An Israeli startup has created a cell with a license to kill cancer. Seriously, what is this new development out of Amazing Israel? Well, this new development's from a company called Edity Therapeutics. It's an Israeli startup. Uh, They developed a way to reprogram a patient's own immune cells to enable them to hunt down and destroy cancer cells. Our immune cells are designed to enter and destroy disease cells. That's what they're there to do. But cancer cells operate in a stealth mode that keeps them from being targeted by the body's regular immune system. Scientists have been able to reprogram a patient's cells to fight blood cancers, but until now, that approach hasn't been possible fighting solid tumors. And that's where Edity Therapeutics comes in. They're ready to begin preclinical trials of a process to develop and attack solid tumors, and they've codenamed it ED007. Uh, They extract immune cells from the person's own body and enable them to identify and attack solid tumors. So in a not-too-distant future, doctors will be able to re-engineer cells from our own body to fight solid tumors. And when that day arrives, we need to thank these researchers from Amazing Israel for the work they've been doing. Looking forward to a full program today with our guest, John Fugler, straight ahead. I love his uh, idea here, how you and I can avoid becoming like Pharisees. In fact, how to silence your inner Pharisee. It's a great conversation. You don't want to miss it. Plus, Charlie's back with your Bible questions and a devotional later on. Much to come right here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. Some of Jesus' harshest words were aimed at the Pharisees. Just who were these people, and why did Jesus judge them so severely? More importantly, how can you and I guard against becoming like them? This is The Land of the Book. I'm John Geiger, and coming up, you'll learn how to silence your inner Pharisee. First, though, let's learn how you and I can stop being silent when it comes to sharing Christ with our Jewish friends. When it comes to reaching out to our Jewish friends and witnessing to them, Most of us are excuse factories. We've got all kinds of reasons why we can't, including we crank out twisted theology that says something like, do we really need to share the gospel with Jewish people when Paul apparently teaches that they're all going to be saved one day anyhow? Let's ask Levi Hazen with Life in Messiah. What do you think? Well, John, some people have twisted Paul's writings in Romans 11.26, where Paul writes that one day all Israel will be saved. And they've taken that and they've said, well, this means all Jewish people will be saved for all time, going back to the furthest point in history, 
so there's no need to evangelize them. But this is clearly a twisting of what Paul himself and all the rest of the New Testament authors taught. Also, Jesus taught, and it's recorded in John 14, 6, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. And guess who he was talking to when he delivered that message? A group of Jewish people. So Jewish people absolutely need Jesus, even today. In Romans eleven twenty six, what Paul is saying there is that there's a future day, even the prophets talk about this, when all Israel will welcome the Messiah, and whoever's alive at that time will believe in him. Levi Hazen is with Life in Messiah and joins us today on The Land and the Book. John Edward Fugler has been writing for Christian audiences for 40 years. He shares simple truths that have had a profound impact on the lives of many believers. His career has included Christian broadcasting, publishing, and missions. God has given him a passion to take the gospel to the least, unreached, and unengaged around the world. He serves as Chief Content Officer with Transworld Radio. John is the author of 10 books, including the focus of today's conversation, Silence Your Inner Pharisee. It's good to have you back on the land in the book, John. Glad to be back, John. I'm looking forward to this. Well, so who exactly were the Pharisees? They get a fair amount of ink in the New Testament. <laughs> they do. They get a bad rap, don't they? And as we study them, I think some of us can relate to them, because they weren't all that bad. I mean... They were opponents of Jesus and early Christians. The New Testament depicts that. But also, they warned Jesus that his life is in danger from Herod. You find that in Luke 13, 31. They invite him for meals. Uh, They're attracted to or they believe in Jesus. We can find that throughout the book of John. And they protect early Christians. Look look up Acts 5, 34. Look up uh, Acts 23, uh, verses 6 through 9. And Paul, he was a Pharisee before his conversion, so we know... Uh, something about that. But uh, yeah, they were legalistic. We, I think when we think about Pharisee, we think of the word legalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that's how we identify most Pharisees. But we need to remember that they were, they were human. They weren't all that bad, and they had some good traits. Sure. Well, how homogenous a group were the Pharisees, or were they like us, split into billions of denominations? Well, it's kind of like they're, uh, I don't know if the word sect is right, but there weren't that many of them. I mean, it wasn't like there were thousands and thousands of Pharisees, but they, from what we can tell, there was uh, hundreds of them. Matthew calls attention, if you look in Matthew 23, to their uh, positions of religious authority in the community. Uh, and so they were authorities, they were leaders, uh, they were a select group of people. And as we know, they were really concerned about outward recognition and honor. And one of the things, too, about Pharisees is they were enthusiastic about making converts. Doesn't that sound like a, a lot of us as yeah, well? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so that, that was good. And they were observing legalistic uh, minutia of the law. And Jesus condemned them, not for what they did, because they were doing good things, but for neglecting the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. They I guess you could say they've they've lost their heart. They lost their heart, which mm. is, I think, for some of us, we, we lose our heart in the whole thing of doing the right things for God. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, talking with another John who spells it correctly, J-O-N. That's John Fugler, his book, Silence Your Inner Pharisee. John, why did these Pharisees have so much clout? I mean, they seem to operate without anyone policing or critiquing their own lives and, and their public decrees. How could this be? Boy, that's really amazing. And I think we see that happening 
throughout history, throughout Christian history, where we yield the power to those who who emerge or are in power. In some ways, we do that. But I think there's a lot of political involved there. It didn't happen overnight. They gradually uh, became the men of power. And if we think in over the course of history, this has happened more than once in Christian mm-hmm. circles, where we put people in power, and for some reason and somehow they begin to rule. They set the rules and they rule, and we yield almost like this avalanche, and it becomes too big for the average person, the average believer even, to fight against that. And we willingly put us under their power. So I don't know exactly how that emerged. I think that'd be a great study, but it happened where they were in power. Well, you've touched on on their good points, and the Pharisees were not without those, and yet they really were the special object of Christ's rebuke on many, many occasions. Why was that so? Mm, that's because they, it was the outward. Um, it was the fact that they were appearing, and they wanted the public attention to follow the law, and not only the law, but the things that they added to the law, and they were 600 some odd things that they added to the law that they said we had to observe. I think we think of when Jesus healed on the Sabbath and said, you can't do that, it's working. And there's no compassion. There's Mm. no love there. It was the law as opposed to the compassion of, as believers, we're supposed to reach out. We're supposed to help, whether it's, it doesn't matter what day of the week it is, but they had lost that. They were Mm. cold and legalistic. And they were pursuing the law rather than, I think, pursuing God. Uh, I believe they probably started pursuing God, but they really wanted to live a life that others would see as, quote-unquote, pleasing God. They were sincere in what they did, but boy, were they misguided. (laughs) John Fugler has written the book Silence Your Inner Pharisee, and the fact that you've written this book suggests the problem of Phariseeism is alive and well. So I ask, how could born-again Christians today— possibly be the least bit like the Pharisees of Christ's day? Well, as believers, I think, and I'm a longtime believer, and I think that the longer we are a Christian, the more we can really get into this Pharisaic attitude, uh, Pharisaic behavior, because the Christian life becomes a set of rules. The Christian life becomes pursuing the right things as opposed to pursuing Christ. And Christ melts our heart. Jesus melts our heart. And we will do the right things for the Lord with the right motivation, where Jesus is living his life in and through us, rather than having this this shell of appearance that we are doing the right thing. This happens over time. Mm. I believe that in my own experience, this happened over time. It's where I was taught and trained by people who are well-meaning, and they were obedient followers of Christ. And they had hearts for Christ, but my mind said, oh, here's what I have to do. I have to Mm. have a quiet time every day. I have to serve in the church. I have to lead people to Christ. I have to study the Bible. Those are good things, you know. Those are good things. (laughs) I was doing those things, but I often miss Jesus. I I say I overshot Jesus. Mm. I think a lot of us overshoot Jesus in doing the right things for Jesus. Before you know it, we start to get legalistic, and we start to come down on people when they're not behaving right. And in our own lives, we're we're missing out on the love of Christ and knowing Christ intimately. And the Christian life is lived out of that knowing, out of that relationship with Christ. 
Uh, we find that in the life of Paul, where he knew Christ, and he was one of the, the staunchest Christians, believers, and he followed Jesus to his death, and yet he knew Christ. That was the motivation. He wasn't a performer. He left Phariseeism behind. Well, let's get personal here for a moment. How do I know if I have a problem with being a Pharisee? You've touched on a couple of ideas. What symptoms should I be looking for, though? Mm, you know, it's, um, it's funny because when you think about the symptoms, um, you think about things like, well, I'm feeling spiritually dry. I'm feeling distant from God. I'm inconsistent in my walk with Christ. And we're conflicted because we've been Christians for a long time. And as we grow in our walk with the Lord over time, we should be closer to Him. We would be spiritually alive and not dry. We should be consistent in our walk with Christ. So here we are fading away, really, in our heart, in our walk with Christ and feeling distant from God the longer that we are a Christian. There's a disconnect there. We're Mm -hmm. confused. Mm -hmm. It's frustrating. And we're behaving in ways that are not Christ-like. And we're sensing in our heart that something is missing. So there's that disconnect there. Hmm. And so those are symptoms of what could be living a performance lifestyle, as opposed to a a lifestyle of being intimately related to Jesus and and continuing that, that depth of knowing Christ. In the book, Silence Your Inner Pharisee, John Fugler shares with us about his own journey. And so I want you to help us uh, find the way out, John. What is the way out from this uh, dead-end Phariseeism? Hmm. Well, I go back to Paul, and, uh, and he said in Philippians that he considers everything a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. To me, that's it. It's knowing Christ. We think, well, on such and such a date, for me, January 7, 1973, I came to know Christ. Now let's move on. No, no, for Paul, that was just the beginning, and for us, it needs the beginning. Paul lived some of the most harrowing experiences in, in the persecution, the beatings, the shipwrecks, the imprisonment, and yet he's writing these letters about how joyful he is in Christ, how well he knows Jesus. And, and why is that? That's because he really pursued Christ and knowing him. And so the solution in that is what Paul says, is that we want to know Christ. And when we think about Jesus, think about Jesus on the cross and that moment where he gave his life for us and allowed us to come into a relationship with God. And when we know Christ, oftentimes we think about Christ on the cross. We think of Jesus, I know that Jesus. I'd like us to think about the Christ of the cross, the Christ of eternity. The Christ on the cross is a snapshot. The Christ of the cross is Jesus of eternity. He's the Savior Lamb on the cross and the Lord of all that we (laughs) read about in Revelation. Just, Just read that. And we need to know Him fully to worship Him fully. I believe as believers, we need to go back and have time with God that is all about knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus more fully, knowing him as who he is and all his character qualities, knowing him in ways that um, we may never have explored before because we say, oh, I've been there. I know Jesus and his uh, omniscience. Well, we'll think about that. Knowing, I know Jesus as the good shepherd. Well, think further about that. Study that and really come to know this Jesus when you do. It'll break your heart. You'll be softened. You will know Christ. 
You know, I bet there's a, a whole lot of uh, bells that are ringing in a lot of heads of listeners right now as they hear this conversation, John. Let's, let's keep it practical, offering one simple thing as we close this conversation, one simple step listeners could take right now that would make a huge difference in silencing their own inner Pharisee. What would that be? I'm going to challenge you to spend and to have a retreat with Jesus. Hmm. I mean, take a day if you can. Uh, take a half a day, perhaps. I like to do half a day each month, and I just meet with Jesus. No rules. I bring my Bible. I bring my journal. I bring my phone, not to make phone calls or texts, but maybe to listen to some worship music and to spend time with Jesus. Listen, read the Word, write things down, and say, Jesus, meet me here. I want to know you. For me, it's a reset every month because I get, I get pressures and you get pressures that come upon us and these daily quiet times, we need to have those, but these extended times of retreat, it will be absolutely amazing. And you just shut everything else out. There's no rules. You're just meeting with Jesus. Carve that time out. Even today, say, okay, I'm getting out my calendar. Um, I've got a little time left this summer. Here's a half a day where I can be with Jesus. And carve it out and say, this is protected time. Lord Jesus, I'm going to meet with you. Find a place where you won't be interrupted and enjoy that time with Jesus. I'll tell you, as you know him, you will move from that pharisaical performance into a knowing relationship, and you will have joy as you live for Jesus. Wow, what a great uh, visit. Thank you, John, for bringing our attention to this uh, important issue. And for the book, Silence Your Inner Pharisee, a link to it at our website, thelandandthebook.org. Hey, let's visit again. Thank you, John. This is great, and uh, God bless you and your ministry. And you as well. Hey, Charlie's back with a great set of questions. I love the questions that you're sharing with us here at The Land of the Book. Hope you'll stick around as Charlie answers them next. When you open up a book as deep and thick and at times complex as the Bible, you're sure to encounter questions. What do you do with yours? Well, coming up next on The Land of the Book, we're going to answer some of those questions, quite possibly one of yours, if you emailed us. Hey, this is The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager. And before I get ahead of myself, maybe you wonder when this program is over, where do you turn for more content about Israel, the Bible, and, and sharing the gospel with Jewish people? Well, Life and Messiah has been focused recently on producing high-quality video content on their YouTube channel. Engaging videos are being released twice a week related to these important topics, and we encourage you to check out their content, which will be inspiring and uplifting. As a special for Land in the Book listeners, if you visit lifeinmessiah.org and click on the Moody Radio button, you'll get a sneak peek at one of their upcoming videos and be able to subscribe to their channel. That's lifeinmessiah.org, and then click on the Moody Radio button. Carol was looking at Matthew 12, wondering if there are any extra biblical references to three days and three nights that prove that this phrase does not need to be interpreted in a woodenly literal fashion. She says, I was taught that three days and three nights in Hebrew could mean that some of the days are partial days, meaning there are not three literal nights. Can you help me? Yeah, and the best way I've actually found to answer this is to look at the specific scriptures that focus on the events and see how they can best be harmonized. For example, in Matthew 27, the chief priests and Pharisees appeared before Pilate, and they quoted Jesus' words that, after three days, I'm going to rise again. But they then asked Pilate to, quote, 
give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Now, if they had understood his words to mean he was going to be in the tomb three full days and nights, they would have asked to have the tomb made secure until the fourth day. In Luke 24, Jesus appeared to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus on the morning of his resurrection. And when Jesus asked them what they're talking about, they said, well, this is the third day since these things happened. But if Jesus had been in the tomb three full days and nights, then this actually would have been the fourth day since the events had taken place. Uh, Finally, the Gospels make it clear that Jesus was removed from the cross just before the beginning of the Sabbath, which is Saturday. Uh, Mark and Luke and John all mention that. And all four Gospels make it clear that the resurrection took place on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Now, when I put all that together, the only way they can be harmonized is to recognize that they understood three days and three nights to refer to parts of three different days, you know, from Friday's crucifixion through the Sabbath in the grave until early Sunday morning's resurrection. Uh, Whether it was the religious leaders, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, or, or the gospel writers themselves, they all saw this as being equivalent to the expression three days and three nights. And in the end, we need to let the writers interpret themselves. Vernon takes us to Deuteronomy 23, verses 1 through 6, which mention all the different groups of people who are not able to enter the assembly of the Lord. What I do not understand, he says, is it seems like some groups are punished by no fault of their own. Can you give me your take on this passage? Yeah, I take the commands there to refer primarily to exclusion from Israel's religious ceremonies and gatherings. You know, some of the commands are are similar to God's prohibitions against those who touched a dead body or in some other way become ritually impure. You know, in those cases as well, God barred them from participating in, in those kind of services. But I don't see these passages intended to be ironclad prohibitions. For example, the exclusion of a Moabite until the 10th generation, that's verse 3 of that passage, would have prohibited David from participation since Ruth was David's great-grandmother. But Ruth's confession in Ruth 1, you know, your people will be my people, your God, my God, in essence allowed God to see her as part of the covenant community. Now, I also see that principle developed in Isaiah 56, verses 4 to 6. In that passage, God promises to allow foreigners and eunuchs into his presence if they seek after him. This is The Land of the Book with our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, answering questions from the Bible. Questions about prophecy, questions about the Middle East. They're all welcome, you know, as you email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Stephen says, in 1 Kings 16, 15, we see that Zimri began his reign as king of Israel in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah. In 1 Kings 16, verse 23, we see that Omri began his reign over Israel in the 31st year of King Asa of Judah. However, Zimri's reign only lasted seven days. In 1 Kings 16, there was an uprising between two factions. Did this revolt last for four years without a king of Israel? Yeah, well, I'll say it this way. The compiler of kings doesn't go into great detail, but I do take it from the dates that are listed there that that civil war between Omri and Tibni must have lasted about four years. In some ways, I see this being similar to the beginning of David's reign. I remember he was reigning over Judah while Ishbosheth was reigning over the rest of Israel, and they competed for the kingship of Israel following the death of King Saul. And in that case, it took David seven years to gain full control of the nation. Now, I want to end up with one other thing. Uh, most people hearing those names, they just their, their mind kind of shuts off, their eyes roll back. I really want to commend Stephen. 
you know, if you study these kind of details in the Bible, they can help make the history of the kings come alive. And there's a book, if anybody wants to know more about the kings, it's called The Mysterious Numbers of the Hebrew Kings by Edwin Tila, T-H-I-E-L-E. It is a great book, a little bit complex, but it's definitely worth the investment if you want to know about all these reigns and some of the apparent chronological inconsistencies that actually can be harmonized. Reggie takes us all the way to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. In chapter 5, verse 10, it says, And have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. But other versions, he says, like the NASB, ESV, and NIV, have they instead of us. Why is there a difference, and to whom is it referring? Yeah, well, the key issue here probably is textual. Uh, the manuscripts on which the King James Version and the New King James Version are based read, you redeemed us and made us to be kings and priests. And since the ones speaking are the 24 elders, that would suggest that the 24 elders represent humans, either the church or the church and Israel. Uh, the passage would then be picturing humans praising God for what he has done for them. But other manuscripts, the ones on which the NIV, the New American Standard, and the ESV are based, say, you redeemed them and made them to be kings and priests. Uh, if that's the correct reading, and I tend to think it is, then the 24 elders likely represent a class of angels rather than Israel and the church, since they're speaking of humans in the third person. Now, while it's a textual issue, I do, as I said, personally believe the text that the NIV, New American Standard, and ESV are using is the more accurate manuscript in this case. So I, I see the elders being angels, not humans. Jeff says, I was wondering about God bringing forth water from a rock. Did Moses do this on two occasions, or was it just done once using different language? In Exodus 17, it says this took place in the wilderness of Sin, while Numbers 20 says it happened in the wilderness of Zin. Is this just the same place with a different spelling? Uh, it's actually two separate incidents. Uh, the first, in Exodus 17, occurred very early in the time of the Exodus. In fact, right around it, it gives the dates. Uh, just before this happens, the incident ahead of it was the 15th day of the second month after their departure from Egypt. That's chapter 16, verse 1. The next date given is the third month on the very first day, and that's 19-1. So the incident in chapter 17 must have taken place in about a two-week period between those two dates. In contrast, the second event took place after the death of Miriam, which was at the very end of the Exodus. So the two events are 39 years apart. In addition, those two locations, they, they might look similar in English, but they're two very different Hebrew words, two very different geographical regions. The wilderness of Sin is in the southwest side of the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, the wilderness of Zin is on the north side of the Sinai Peninsula, actually just to the southwest of the Dead Sea. Moses obeyed God in that first incident. He struck the rock as God commanded. But in the second, Moses disobeyed God's command. God told him just to speak to the rock and bring out the water, but in his anger over the complaints of the Israelites, Moses struck the rock twice. God still graciously sent water, but that one act of disobedience is what kept Moses from going into the promised land. And to me, that's actually a sober reminder. God holds leaders accountable to a higher standard of obedience. Kathy says, my question concerns John 21, verses 15 through 17. John is relating a conversation between Jesus and Peter. This conversation would have been in Aramaic, right? The significance of the different words in Greek used for love in this conversation, though, have me wondering. Are the Hebrew words ahava and hesed the Hebrew equivalents to agape and phileo? How might the conversation between Jesus and Peter have gone in the spoken language that would lead John, many years later, to use the word choices that he did? 
Yeah, well, Aramaic was the normal language spoken in the land at the time of Jesus, but it's also likely Jesus and the disciples spoke Greek fluently. Uh, There are no specific Aramaic words that correspond to the different Greek words that are used there. They just don't quite match up. So this could be a time when Jesus actually spoke in Greek to emphasize a specific point to Peter. Now, it's also possible that John, when writing the gospel, simply added the transition between the two words in Greek to show the intent of what Jesus was questioning when he did talk to Peter. Now, it's one of those times when I think we just need to stick with what the Bible actually says in the text rather than trying to determine what might have been said in Aramaic. Well, a lot of questions here that uh, we've covered today and more to come next week. Your question is always welcome. There's room for yours if you'll email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. One more segment to go. It's Charlie Dyer's devotional. You don't want to miss it next on The Land and the Book. often said that we often save the best for last. I think that's the case sometimes here on The Land and the Book. I'm John Gager, uh, looking forward to Charlie Dyer's devotional. Where are we headed today, Charlie? Uh, We're heading to uh, a text that looks at some southpaws today. Really? We'll look forward to your devotional. First, though, this testimony from someone who's traveled to Israel and has a thought for you and me. Hi, my name is Bob McRae, and when I look back at my time visiting the Holy Lands, I, I tell you, it's it's hard to just uh, say, okay, what were some of the highlight moments? I remember uh, being in Engedi, where David hid from King Saul, and uh, just in, envisioning the fact of David being in the caves, hiding there, and uh, wondering what that must have been like. But probably uh, the biggest highlight for me was the time that we spent up by the Sea of Galilee, to think that so many of uh, the miracles that Jesus performed and so much of his life took place up there, uh, to actually see, um, you know, the, the sea where Jesus uh, walked on the water, uh, to be able to picture that, uh, to get uh, an idea of even how small even the Sea of Galilee was, uh, to see uh, the place where very strong likelihood the Sermon of the Mount was given, uh, incredible. Uh, to right off of there, go to uh, Capernaum, and to, to see the places where, again, so many of the different miracles took place and to be able to just kind of envision what it must have been like back then in the days of Jesus. Uh, incredible, incredible trip. Uh, something that I would recommend that anybody who has the opportunity to do, uh, to take advantage of that. Famous Lefties of the Bible. That's an interesting title, Charlie. I'll get out of the way and let you get to it. Oh, thanks, John. Well, August 13 is International Left-Handers Day a day to celebrate the 10 to 12 percent of the world's population who are southpaws. Let's face it, the world hasn't always been kind to lefties. Everything from scissors to tape measures to measuring cups are usually made for right-handers. For many years, parents and teachers tried to discourage southpaws from writing with their left hand. In many parts of the world, the left hand is considered the unclean hand. Even our vocabulary has a built-in prejudice toward left-handers. The word sinister comes from a Latin word meaning on the left side. And the word gauche comes from a French word that means left as opposed to right. Apparently, right-handers have always had concerns about lefties. After all, sinister and gauche are not exactly compliments. But the Bible presents something of a different perspective. Today, we're starting our devotional in the territory assigned to the tribe of Benjamin. Then we'll end at the Mount of Olives. Along the way, we're going to look at some of the famous lefties in the Bible. 
Our journey begins in Jericho, a city originally destroyed by Joshua. But while Joshua destroyed the walled portion of the city, the rest of the oasis remained intact. The powerful spring there still flowed, and the date palms and other vegetation still grew in abundance. The site also guarded a spot where the Jordan River could be crossed, so it controlled the main east-west road stretching between the Ammonites, Amalekites, and Moabites to the east and Israel to the west. It was only a matter of time until someone took advantage of this strategic location, and that someone was Eglon, king of Moab. Eglon united with the Ammonites and the Amalekites to seize and control the strategic site of Jericho, and then he used Jericho as a base of operation to extend his control up into the hill country of Israel. The tribes most directly impacted were the tribes of Benjamin and Ephraim. Israel cried to the Lord for deliverance, and God provided a judge. His name was Ehud, a left-handed man from the tribe of Benjamin. The name Benjamin itself comes from two Hebrew words that means son of my right hand. It's the name Jacob gave to his youngest son. But in a strange bit of irony, this descendant of that right-hand man is left-handed. The Israelites sent Ehud to Jericho to deliver their annual payment of tribute to Eglon. Eglon was Mr. Big in Jericho, literally. The Bible says he was a very fat man. He was a rotund ruler, a massive monarch. Well, you get the picture. To prepare for his assignment, Ehud fashioned a double-edged sword, a cubit long, that's about 18 inches, a very long dagger or a very short sword. And Judges 3 goes out of its way to let you know he strapped it to his right thigh under his clothing. After delivering the money, Ehud said he had a secret message for Eglon. The king dismissed all his attendants and awaited the message. Ehud said it was from God. Then he reached across his body with his left hand to pull out the sword hidden on his right thigh and plunged it into Eglon, killing him. Ehud then locked the room's doors and slipped out the back before anyone realized the king was dead. He ran back to the hill country and summoned the men of Ephraim to follow him in battle. Racing back down to Jericho, they seized the fords of the Jordan River and killed about 10,000 Moabites before they could escape. This lefty used his natural advantage to trick and kill the king, and then he used his military skill to deliver the nation. For our next look at lefties, we're staying in the territory of Benjamin, but we're moving further into the book of Judges. Judges 19 to 21 presents a sad, sordid tale of moral corruption that led to civil war among the tribes and that nearly wiped out the tribe of Benjamin. But within the overall drama, the writer paused to explain how 26,000 soldiers from the outnumbered tribe of Benjamin were able to hold off the larger army of 400,000 gathered from the rest of the tribes. Judges 20:16 provides the key. Among the 26,000 swordsmen of Benjamin were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, each of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. The writer makes two comments about this select group of 700 Benjamites. First, they were left-handed. If you've ever been involved in sports, you know that there's something disconcerting about seeing a left-handed pitcher or batter or basketball player or quarterback. They're used to facing righties, but righties aren't as prepared because they face so few lefties. An entire battalion of southpaws working together could bewilder an enemy. But second, these slingstone throwers weren't just left-handed. They were also incredibly skilled. Uh, growing up, I thought the verse was saying that they could sling a stone at a moving rabbit and hit the mark. But the writer is referring to a human hair, not a rabbit. Most slingstone throwers hope to have their stone hit the basic target. 
These 700 were able to aim for a particular spot on a person's head or face and hit the mark. It would be similar to someone today saying a person is such a good marksman he could shoot the wings off a fly at 50 yards. These soldiers were skillful. Sadly, they were using their skill to defend fellow Benjamites who had committed a terrible sin. The result is that only 600 of the 26,000 soldiers were left after the fighting was over. In the time remaining, let me quickly head to Jerusalem to explore our third southpaw of the day. And this one might come as a surprise because it's the Apostle Peter. As far as we know, he was not from the tribe of Benjamin, but he still appears to be a lefty. Now, to see why, we need to go to the time when Judas led a mob of soldiers and servants to arrest Jesus at Gethsemane. In a bit of short-lived bravado, John 18 tells us that Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Luke also records that it was the right ear that was struck by the sword. So how does this prove Peter was a lefty? Well, stop and imagine you're facing an opponent. If you're right-handed and pull out your sword to attack, you're likely to hit the left side of your opponent because that's the side opposite or facing your right hand. If Peter cut off the right ear of the servant, then Peter must have been holding his sword in his left hand. And if Peter was a lefty, he definitely wasn't as skilled as the lefties from the tribe of Benjamin. Now, what lessons can we learn from the south paws of the Bible? Well, I actually see at least two important lessons. First, we do need to recognize that God has created all of us with unique characteristics, gifts, and abilities. And for about 10% of the population, that includes being left-handed. At a time when most of society frowned on being left-handed, God's Word embraces it as a useful quality. Ehud and the 700 Benjamites were singled out for their skillful use of this unique ability. You might not be left-handed, but there are other qualities you have which make you unique. Others might look down on those qualities, like people in the past have done with lefties. But I would encourage you to embrace those unique gifts given to you by God, and then seek ways to use them for His glory. And second, we do need to remember that gifts and talents can also be misused. The 700 Benjamites used their skill to defend the sinful actions of their fellow tribesmen in a civil war that nearly wiped out the entire tribe. And Peter got into trouble trying to use his sword to defend Jesus. Thankfully, Jesus was able to intervene to provide healing. We need to make sure that we bring all our gifts, talents, and abilities under the control of the Holy Spirit. So for all you lefties and righties out there on International Left-Handers Day, don't be gauche and don't act sinister. Instead, use whatever hand is your dominant one for the glory of God. Thank you, Charlie. I'm sure that's an encouragement to many of our Southpaw friends. Well, time is gone, and we thank you so much for being a part of The Land and the Book. I encourage you to visit that website, thelandandthebook.org. For our producer, Dan Anderson, our host, Charlie Dyer, I'm John Geiger. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.